sacrifices. Now, as I mentioned, we spoke about sacrifices before, um, but it keeps coming up, and everyone wants to hear it again. Um, I guess not everyone, but a lot of you want to hear about it again. And so I decided we're going to bring it up again. It's a very controversial topic. A lot of people struggle with the concept of sacrifices in Judaism, so it's very important to address. So let's begin with this. Does Judaism believe in sacrifice? So animal sacrifice, that is. We're going to focus today on... There were also vegetable sacrifice or... um, Wheat sacrifice, barley sacrifice, the temple as well. We're going to focus today on animal sacrifice. So, the first mention of sacrifice in the Torah is already with Adam and his sons. Adam and Eve are the first people that are created. Adam originally has two sons, one by the name of Cain, and the other one's name is Abel, or in Hebrew, Cain and Hevel. Torah tells us that Cain decides to plant, and he becomes the first world's first farmer, while Abel decides to become a herdsman and becomes the world's <laughs> first herdsman. <coughs> Excuse me. Both Cain and Abel bring the sacrifices, the Torah tells us. Cain, who is a farmer, brings sacrifices from his plants. Abel, who is a herdsman, brings sacrifices from his the choicest of his animals. God accepts which sacrifice? Abel's sacrifice, Hevel's sacrifice. He does not accept Cain's sacrifice. So he likes the animal sacrifice. He doesn't like the plant sacrifice. Um, From the Torah it appears, the reason is, and our sages say this explicitly, the reason is because Cain just brought cheap or the leftovers of his plants. Abel brought the best of his plants for a sacrifice. How did they know whose sacrifice God accepted? So we find this also later in the Torah, that a, they put the sacrifice on the altar, and it burst into flames. Abel's burst into flames. Miraculously, Cain's did not. And that way, Cain was, that's why Cain was jealous of Abel. And we know the end. Cain ends up killing Abel. And that's where the Torah tells us about the evil inclination and the power of a human to overcome their evil inclination and the struggle that every person has between their two, good, their two sides, the good side and the evil side. But we do see the concept of animal sacrifice. Abel's the first one recorded to bring animal sacrifice. And God liked this sacrifice. Why did he like A simple reason is he gave the leftovers, the garbage, the bad stuff. Abel gave the best of the best. <clears throat> then the Torah tells us, moving forward a little bit to the next Torah reading, Noah goes on the ark. He takes two of each animal, a male and female, so they could reproduce um, on the ark with him. But he takes seven of every kosher animal, cows, sheep, and goats, as well as, that appears, kosher birds. When... Noah comes off the ark. Those extra um, animals that he had taken, those extra kosher animals that he had taken, he offers a sacrifice to God to thank God for having saved him. So again, a recorded sacrifice, and God smells the fragrance of the sacrifice, and it's pleasing before him, and God then swears that he will never again destroy our world. So again, sacrifice is brought by... um, by Noah, uh, appears that God had wanted him to do so because he told him to take the extra animals to start with into the ark. 
and um, God is very happy that he brought it to the point God makes this, this vow to never again destroy our world. I just have a question. God is destroying human beings except, or all animals, whatever, and especially say human beings, but then he didn't change the way human beings are, so when they came about again, they're still the same. Well, maybe so he did change the way human beings are. That's, that's a discussion uh, for the story of Noah's Ark. We'll get to that at one point. So, then we continue in the Torah. Abraham brings sacrifices to God. Isaac, his son, brings sacrifices to God. Jacob brings sacrifices to God. Israel leaves Egypt. They come to Sinai. God says, you will be my chosen people. We will make a covenant together. As part of entering the covenant, Israel brings sacrifices to God. Later, Moses comes down from Sinai and he tells them to build this temple. And in the temple that they build, there is an ark with the tablets that's in a room that they almost never go in. There is a menorah. There are, there's incense. There is special incense on a golden altar. There is um, special bread that they bake every week. And, but the main service in the temple is outdoors in the temple courtyard. is a big altar. And they are sp- supposed to bring sacrifices. And <coughs> the temple stands with a little breaks, some breaks here and there for over 1,200 years. There are temples first in, they travel through the desert, then in Shiloh, some of us were just in Shiloh, and then in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and for about 1,200 years we had a temple. In the temple, the Torah tells us, twice every day you should bring a sacrifice, a morning sacrifice and an afternoon sacrifice every single day. In addition, the Torah says in very great detail, every Shabbat, Bring extra sacrifice called the Musa on Rosh Chodesh, the new month. Bring extra sacrifices. Every holiday, there's a long list, Passover, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. There's long lists of extra sacrifices to bring for every single holiday. In addition, individuals are supposed to bring sacrifices. You can bring sacrifices Firstly, when you sin for certain sins, the Torah gives us different lists for different sins, different types of sacrifices. Um, in addition, every time we would go to the temple, we would bring sacrifice for the pilgrimage. We would bring um, gifts to God. We would eat sacrificial meat. Some sacrifices were burned on the altar. Some sacrifices, only parts were burned, but most of it was eaten. We would eat sacrificial meat while on the pilgrimage in Jerusalem. Jews were bringing sacrifices. And perhaps the most eventful sacrifice that is described not only in Jewish sources, but also in non-Jewish sources, was the Passover sacrifice. Every year, Jews from all over would come to Jerusalem, swelling the population of Jerusalem by millions. And every family or extended family would offer a Passover sacrifice. As many as hundreds of thousands of Passover sacrifices were offered on a single day. They would offer, they, they would slaughter the animal, burn some of the fats were burned on the altar, and the rest of the animal was brought home, and they would eat it at their Seder. And it was part of, along with the matzah and the marah, they would eat the Passover sacrifice as well. So the temple was destroyed around the year 70, and, or in the year 70, and since, <coughs> excuse me, 
Since the destruction of the temple, we no longer have sacrifices. We were only allowed to bring sacrifices in the temple while the temple stood. Um, once the temple was destroyed, we cannot bring sacrifices in the temple. It's not there anymore. The Torah forbids us from bringing sacrifices outside the temple. So for more than 1900 years, we have not brought any sacrifices. But to recount our sacrifices, we, our sages set the prayers to correspond to the times when the sacrifices were brought. So we have a morning prayer corresponding to the morning sacrifice that was brought every morning in the temple. We have an afternoon prayer corresponding to the afternoon sacrifice that was brought every day in the temple. We have an evening prayer corresponding to the evening burning of the leftover sacrifice that was burned on the altar every night. And so corresponding to that, we have an evening prayer. On Shabbat and festivals... We add a Musaf prayer, an additional prayer corresponding to the additional sacrifices that were brought every single day. So we don't have sacrifices. Today, we pray instead. But do Jews believe still in sacrifice? Or do we no longer believe in it? The temple doesn't build. The Sorry? There's no temple. There's no temple. So we don't actually bring it. But do we believe in it? So in our prayers, in our prayers, we describe the sacrifice in the temple in very great detail. Every Musaf prayer, we go through all the details of the sacrifice that were brought in that Musaf prayer. Every morning in our prayers, we describe all the details of all the sacrifices that were brought in very, very, very great detail. And we ask God, we say, we cannot bring the sacrifice, consider us talking about it as if we actually brought the sacrifice or as the verse says, Unshama parint svateno, our lips, our words should be as if we brought sacrifice. We also pray in every single prayer, <clears throat> we pray for the restoration of the temple. Every time we pray, included in our prayers, <clears throat> is a request to God <clears throat> to return us to Jerusalem, restore the temple, and restore our sacrifices. In fact, at the Seder today, we are missing the most important ingredient at the Seder. We have the matzah, we have the marar, the bitter herbs, but we are missing the Passover sacrifice. And we don't ignore that. We actually mention that throughout our Seder. Firstly, on our Seder plate, we have the bone the roasted bone we put on our Seder plate to remind us of that missing sacrifice that's missing. We also, um, many times throughout the Seder, mention that we are missing the Passover sacrifice, and we ask God to restore the temple so that next year we will be able to bring the Passover sacrifice. So if we are constantly asking God to restore, re describing the sacrifices, reading about them, speaking about them, and asking God to restore the temple so that we can bring the sacrifice. It should be clear that while we do not actually bring sacrifices today because we do not have a temple, we believe in sacrifice, and we would like to bring sacrifices. We only are just not able to bring the sacrifice because our temple is not standing. But it is our wish and our prayer 
that we mention again and again and again, asking God to restore. We've been doing this for 1900 years. Restore the temple, rebuild it, so that we can re- go back and bring sacrifices once again. Yes? I don't get the concept of why we... That is a very good question. That is going to be what we're going to be discussing for the next half hour. <laughs> Would it be like the sacrifice that we did in the old days where we scattered the blood and all that stuff? Do you think the animal rights people will let us do? Oh, just like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would there be a, a, a God wants us to give a sacrifice, or is that something man wants to give to God? God commands us to bring sacrifices in the Torah. In fact, of the six uh, the Mishnah, the first book of Jewish law, was written about the early 200s, and it was split into six volumes. And one volume out of six is called Kadashim, sacrifices. All the laws of sacrifice. And even more so, <coughs> about a third of Jewish, the 613 commandments. About a third of those commandments we cannot keep today because they involve the laws of sacrifices. So a big chunk of Judaism involves sacrifices. We don't keep that because we cannot do it today. We don't have a temple. But sacrifices is a very big part of Judaism. It's a very central part of Judaism. It was while we were able to bring it. And for the last 2,000 years that we have not actually been practicing it, we've been asking God to give us a chance to do it again. Why? So, two questions. Firstly, are sacrifices ethical? Are they ethical? Or is it ethical to bring a sacrifice? Secondly, why would God want sacrifices? Let's first address a greater underlying question for those that are concerned about the animal rights activists. Is it okay to slaughter animals and eat them? Or slaughter animals for other human use? Is that okay? Is that ethical? We do. We do. Some people do it. Some people don't. What is it ethical? Is it ethical? That's our food. You think it is? So vegetarianism or veganism is perhaps a topic for itself. Really deserves its own class. I think we once did a class on it. Um, the short answer is that in Judaism there is no question that eating meat is okay. Uh, in fact, the Torah is very explicit that you are allowed to eat meat. Um, very clear about that. Uh, there was a time, at least according to the Talmud, where, until the days of Noah when we did not eat meat. But from the days of Noah, all humans are allowed to eat meat. Jews are allowed to eat meat. There is no question um, that eating meat is okay from a strict Jewish ethical perspective. That's kind of a weird question. Sure. Um, why would you want to shepherd animals if you're not? Why would you shepherd animals if you would not want to eat them? Well, maybe for their wool, yeah. um, for other uses. Um, it's not only for... The, you could kill an animal not just for their meat. You could kill an animal for their hide. Yeah. You need to wear something, right? You need clothing. You could kill animals for other purposes, not just for their meat. Okay. <laughs> but then it becomes unethical. Mm-hmm. 
It would be more ethical to kill an animal to eat. To eat or to use it, you know, hide or whatever, that's fine. But just to kill the animal... What do you mean? No, we're talking about to use, right? You could kill... Yes. The, eating is not the only use of an animal. There are a lot of other uses. Um, and in fact, um, if you're in the meat business today, you would know that today they don't waste anything in the animal. Um, everything goes to use um, because it'd be a waste of money, right? Even the blood and guts go to f- make fertilizers. Everything goes to use. So what you're saying is... Never wasted anything before. No, no, we never wasted it. But why would now? <laughs> I'm not saying hunting to eat. I'm saying hunting. We're gonna let let, let me let. All right, let's stop here. Let's stop here so I can continue. Please, please. Okay, so let's focus on the ethics of killing animals for use. Now, on the one hand, it is, should be clear that it is wrong to kill animals for no reason. It is wrong, ethically wrong, to kill animals for sports. Firstly, Jews never hunted for the simple reason that if you hunt and kill an animal with an arrow or with a spear or with a gun, you cannot eat it. Judaism requires halachic slaughter, proper slaughter. Without proper slaughter, you cannot eat. Jews never hunted animals. The way we would catch deer or other animals, we would put out traps for them. Um, catch them in traps, and then slaughter them. We never hunted animals. Um, we did fish for our fish, because we, we don't need to slaughter fish. Um, however, it should be clear that hunting for sport or fishing for sport, if without the intention of eating for the fun of <coughs> catching animals for game, um, is definitely not a Jewish value. That should be very clear. For that matter... Sorry? Catching and releasing a fish is a very cruel thing to do to the fish. Well, so how do you catch a so so how do you halakhically catch a fish? Well, fish don't need to be slaughtered, so you could catch fish. That's fine. If you're go if you're catching them to eat, if you're on a fishing trip and you want to, then you're going to fish every night for dinner. That's fine to catch your fish to eat. We don't catch it and throw it back. I mean, unless the fish that you caught is a fish that you're not going to eat and it was accidental. We don't catch, that's cruel. If you're catching a fish to throw it back, even if that fish is now going to live, often it won't, uh, it's cruel to the fish for no reason. So it should, be, it should be clear that we don't kill animals for no reason, but this is not only true with animals. The Torah forbids us from cutting trees for no reason. You cannot cut down a tree for no reason. That's destroying. If it's in your way, if it's a pest, you're allowed to destroy, you're allowed to kill animals as pests as well. If they're causing harm. But for no reason you're not allowed to destroy. For that matter, you cannot, and this is important, it is wrong to walk past a tree and grab a leaf absentmindedly as you walk past a tree. You are destroying God's creation for no reason. If it's for your own experience, for your own to beautify your home, that's for human use. That's fine. But to do it for no reason, to absentmindedly grab a, grab a plant and then just kind of scrunch it up in your hands, people do it all the time, that's unethical. It is wrong to destroy God's creation, not for good reason. That should be very clear. We don't kill animals, we don't destroy trees, or anything else. It doesn't need to be alive. We don't destroy things that God created for no reason. 
unless it has value. It should also be clear that one of the seven Noahide laws, or one of the basic values that God expects of all humanity, is to be merciful and not to be cruel. And this applies to other people. We, don't be, we should never be cruel to people. It also applies to animals. Animals feel pain. It's forbidden to cause animals unnecessary pain. It should be very clear that we're not allowed to be cruel to animals. We're not allowed to do anything that causes them unnecessary pain. It may be hard to raise animals causing them zero pain, just like it's hard to live with people without sometimes they need to cause them a little pain for their own good. Um, but Doesn't sacrifice cause them unnecessary pain because you're not killing them to eat them? Well, killing an animal isn't necessarily painful. You're not allowed to torture an animal. So um, the, example, the, the Torah example is cutting a limb off a living animal or cooking a living animal. That would be causing an animal pain. Uh, for that reason, we have special slaughter laws in order to kill an animal without pain. Um, our laws, despite what anti-Semites have said over the years and have tried to outlaw our kosher laws, and um, unfortunately, um, many countries in Europe still today from the 1930s, from Nazi days, still have anti-Jewish slaughter laws. Um, and it's coming back in Europe now that Europe has become very anti-Semitic again. Um, that claim that our kosher laws, uh, and we're going to do a class on kosher coming up, on kosher slaughter, that our kosher slaughter laws are somehow painful to the animal. Um, they are not. It's a very, very smooth cut with a very, very sharp knife that is extremely smooth, and the animal dies instantly, and there is the animal does not feel any pain from it um, whatsoever. In fact, one could argue that stunning it or shooting it causes more pain to the animal um, that's more. We are allowed to kill animals. We're also allowed to trap animals. That's fine, because we're doing it for our own, so long as we don't do it in a way that we cause unnecessary pain. We cannot stuff animals or cause them pain in any, in any other <laughs> sort of way. <coughs> we must be merciful to um, we must be merciful to God's creations. However, that said, we cannot destroy God's creations for no reason. We cannot cause any pain to any, God, any of God's creation. There's nothing wrong with one animal serving the needs of another animal. In fact, that's part of the food chain of nature. God created certain animals where their role is to provide food for other animals. In fact, there is a beautiful midrash called Perek Shira, which quotes from dozens of different creations of God, animals, plants, other creations of God, each one saying its praise to God. It's a very, and finding different scriptural sources for their different praises. It's a beautiful, um, a very beautiful um, poem that was written um, probably, probably close to 2,000 years ago. And so in this, it's called Perek Shira. Perek Shira. You can Google it, you can find it online. There's all sorts of beautiful picture books um, made with all the animals today. Um, Perek Shira. So in Perek Shira, the frog says, My sacrifice is the greatest of all, since my mission is to serve as food for the birds. And that's the way God created certain animals. Their role is to serve animals higher up the food chain. 
and certain other animals, God created them to serve as food for animals further up the food chain. And we know there's a complex ecosystem. That is the role of animals. And in a sense, when the bird catches the frog in order to eat it, the frog is fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. It was created to serve as food for the bird. And when one bird eats another bird, that's the purpose for which it was created. And when one fish eats another fish, the, um, in, in Psalms we say, Mishpatecha tahom rabba, you have judgment in the depths of the sea. God has a whole ecosystem down there in the sea where everything is created in order to serve, serve as food for other creations. And so God created this whole system that one creation serves for another creation, and that is its purpose. That is why it was created. That's what it's there for. When it is caught and captured by another animal it, and eaten, that is why God created it. That's what it's there for. It has now fulfilled its life mission. In the same way, in the same way too, creation was created to serve man, to serve humans. We are we stand at the very top of creation, we believe, and so therefore we have the right and the ability to productively use all of creation for our purpose. So we can use anything in creation, whether inanimate objects, whether plants, whether animals, we can use them productively to serve our own purpose, whether for food, whether for clothing, whether for other important purposes, for medications, for other things. We have not only the right, but the obligation to use things for our purpose. And not only that, when we use those things for human purpose, we are fulfilling the purpose for which they were created. These things were created to serve as part of the natural ecosystem of which we stand at the top. And so we are des- these things are destined to be used by humans. We definitely have to use all these things. Now, I'll get to you in a moment. Now, we have to contrast this, and this is very important. All of God's creations, which are all there to serve a purpose within God's ecosystem, is very different from human life. While all of creation is there to serve another part of creation, everything is there as part of a complex ecosystem that God created in order for creation to function and thrive, we humans stand at the top. It's very important to remember this. Everything else in the world is utilitarian. It was created for utility. To serve a purpose within creation. Humans were not created to serve creation. Very important. We were created to serve God. We're not created to serve creation. Human life, unlike animal life, which is utilitarian. As long as the animal life is useful, keep it is as long as it's more useful alive, keep it alive. If you have greater use in killing it, whether to save it from its own suffering, whether to serve as food for another animal, for humans, or serve as something else, that's okay, you can kill it. It's greater, it's greater utility. While animals, plants, and everything else is utilitarian, is created for its use, humans are created to serve God. Human life is not for its utility. If somebody's life is no longer valuable, doesn't matter. 
Every life is infinite. Every life is there for God. You can never kill one human for another, let alone kill a human for some other part of creation. We never destroy human life no matter what. Human life is infinite. And it's very important to remember that distinction between animal life <coughs> or plant life and human life. Everything else is there is created as part of the ecosystem, utilitarian. Human life, though, is infinite. Human life can never be taken for the sake of another. Human life can never be ended because you don't see value in it, because human life is absolute. Yes, Yes, we don't need a class on capital punishment. <laughs> we could do that. It's a good idea. Okay, yes. Now, according to the <coughs> We touched on that. Why you eat an animal, you or you are bringing it to a higher level. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. But it's everywhere through the ecosystem, right? It serves its purpose. When you are, but then, but then it, it, you don't think that it's doing such a bad thing because you're bringing it to. It's not a bad thing at all. No, That's why it was created. Because you're bringing it to a higher level. That's the reason it's not bad. It's not bad because it's serving its purpose. Even if an animal eats another animal, it's serving the purpose for which it was created. An animal eats a plant. The plant is serving the purpose for which it was created. Yes? What if, um, what about when animals eat humans? Like, in, you know, like when they eat, when a lion or a tiger eats a human. Animals are not supposed to eat humans. I'm sorry? Animals are not supposed to eat humans. But they do. In fact, animals do not naturally eat humans. Animals do not naturally eat humans, generally. Um, sometimes they do attack a human, but generally they do not. And, and the Talmud says that animals only eat humans that lose their, for whatever reason, they have lost their um, their image of God. So humans that act as they should... Animals are afraid of them. Animals that humans that lose their selameloki, their image of God, animals will eat them. Animals are not supposed to eat humans, um, and animals are not supposed to harm humans. They, they don't have the right to do that. Sometimes in nature they do, and we've got to protect ourselves from them. Sharks or when pit bulls attack people. They don't usually. They don't usually. Yeah. Most animals don't generally attack humans or run away from humans. And the is that they get destroyed when they yes. Yes. So now that explains eating animals. Let's move on from there to sacrifice. Why does God want sacrifice? So sa what does the sacrifice actually mean? Sacrifice means that you give up something for a greater purpose. Right? So in this instance, in the instance of an animal sacrifice, you purchase an animal, which is valuable, or it's one of your own animal from your own flock, and you give it to God. You give it to God for a greater purpose. And when we do that, we're recognizing that whatever we have ultimately is not ours. Whatever we have ultimately belongs to God. So we're not taking it for ourselves. We're ultimately giving it to God. So we take something of our own, something valuable of our own, whether plant, because there's plant sacrifice as well, whether animals, and we give it to God, recognizing that everything ultimately belongs to him. Now what does God gain from this animal sacrifice? Does he gain anything from it? God gains absolutely nothing from animal sacrifice. In fact, he says, in, in fact, 
in scripture, it said God says very clearly that um, I don't gain anything. Doesn't doesn't give me anything. All the sacrifices in the world don't give me anything. What is it? Why? Him enjoying the smell. Why then? Why then does God ask us if God has nothing to gain from it? If God has nothing at all to gain from it, why then does He like it? Why does He ask us to do it? The Torah tells us by every single, at least by every elevated offering, which is a sacrifice, some sacrifices, the animals, the parts were burned on the altar and most of the animal was eaten. Some sacrifices were entirely burned on the altar. The sacrifices that are entirely burned on the altar are called an ola or elevated offering. And every time the Torah speaks about the ola, it always mentions that it's a reach nichoach ala Hashem, a pleasant fragrance for Hashem, for God. Now, of course, we know that God has no smell, God has no physical form, and every time the Torah describes physical form, every time we see some sort of physical action in the Torah, we know that it is a metaphor. It is not meant to be taken literally, but it is a metaphor. And that's a basic belief in Judaism, and that's always been. The Torah is very clear that God has no form whatsoever and doesn't have any human experience. So what do we mean that is a pleasant fragrance for Hashem? So perhaps the best example that we have, it's like buying your wife flowers. Why do you buy your wife flowers? Is there any value in the flowers? They look good for maybe a day or two, and then they die. You could get her maybe something that's valuable, maybe something she could eat, maybe some jewelry that's going to diamond lasts forever. Get her something valuable. But she wants you to get her flowers. Why do you have to get her flowers that are going to die soon? Think about how much you spend on the flowers at a wedding. Take a boat. Who right? <laughs> so think of how much you spend on the flowers at the wedding. You spend thousands of dollars on the flowers only for the next day the flowers are all dead. We don't see we don't see <laughs> we don't see any value in them. Why then do women like flowers? I'll tell you a little psychology. <clears throat> why do women like flowers? So perhaps the reason is why women like flowers is because they also know that it's going to die. It looks good for a day or two and then it's gone. And you only buy flowers for your wife because she wants them, not for any other reason. And when you buy flowers for your wife, you come in with the flowers, you say, honey, I know you don't, there's no point in these, they're going to die tomorrow. You're not going to say this, but you're thinking, I know there's no point in these, <laughs> they're going to die tomorrow. There's nothing you could do with them besides just look at them. But I'm getting them just to make you happy, just because that's what you want. And in a sense... When you get something, when you buy a diamond for your wife, and you're thinking, this is a good investment. Value of diamonds go up over time. It's a valuable investment. You're buying it for your wife, but you're also buying it for a long-term investment, right? When you buy something that has utility, you're buying it for her, but you're also buying it for the utility. 
When you buy something that has no value other than making her happy, then she knows you bought her something with no value other than making her happy just because you care about her. Now you have a new feeling for new appreciation for flowers. So that's probably why we don't put flowers on the grave. So they're not going to last. Exactly. And we do. Well, Greek Jews did. Every time we went to a funeral, people would bring flowers. So, <coughs> so, so the same thing also the Talmud says, the Talmud doesn't bring this example, the Talmud says the same thing is also with sacrifices. Why does God find this fragrance of a sacrifice pleasant? Not because God has anything to gain, you burned it. He has nothing to gain from it. God likes sacrifice. You did it just for him. No one gained from it. You didn't give anyone anything. You didn't give God anything. You didn't give do God any favors. It doesn't last. Why did you do it? He asked you to do it. Just because he asked you to do it, that is why you did it. Right? It's like spending time, your child asks you to do something, um, play a game with them. There's no value to it. You're just spending time with your child. That's, you're not teaching them anything. You're not giving them any life lessons. You're just spending time with them. So the same thing also, when we bring sacrifices to God, the Talmud says there's really no value to it. The only value is that it, God said to do it, and we're making him happy. And the only reason we're doing it is because he said to do it. And that is why the Hebrew word for sacrifice is karban. Karban. Karban comes from the Hebrew word karov. Karov means closeness. Sacrifice in Hebrew, the word is closeness, that which brings us close. It's like flowers for God. It's, God says, do this for me, create a relationship. Remember, when you have a relationship with someone, you don't do what you think is good for them. I think we spoke about this a few weeks ago here. You don't do what you think is good for them. If I only gave my wife what I think she should want, we would not have a very happy marriage. Right? If I tell her, she says, I would like to get this, and I say, nah, I don't think there's any value in that. And I only get her the things that I think she really needs or I think she really should get, we're not going to have a very happy marriage, right? No. A relationship is about doing something that the other person wants even when I don't appreciate it. So sacrifices is how we create a relationship with God. God wants it even though we know he has nothing to gain from it. And we do it just for him. That creates that close relationship with God. Can I ask a question also about sacrifice? Besides giving something to somebody else for sacrifice or to God. Um, is, isn't the purpose of sacrificing also like giving things giving things up? Like yes. Like a fast yes. or, or stopping coffee if you're addicted to coffee. Whatever it is. Or, I'm going to get that in a moment. Yes. 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 So now, practicing, yes. giving things up? Yes. So now, in addition to the basic value of sacrifice, the Talmud says it is simply... God said to do it. That is why we do it. It's about creating a relationship. Ultimately, though, sacrifice means to give part of ourselves. 
It's not enough just to, to create a relationship just to make your spouse happy. You have to be able to give things up. You have to be able to give up your hobby, give up your time, give up your Monday night football, give up whatever it may be for your spouse, even if they don't really gain anything from it. But you're prepared to give up for them. And that's what sacrifice is really about. We give up part of ourselves for God. Now, sacrifice also has certain um, lessons that we learn as well. Sacrifice was often brought for sin. And um, it teaches us when we would slaughter an animal for the sin, the Talmud said, after having transgressed the sin and asking God for forgiveness. It teaches us not only are we giving God for what we call kapara or atonement, the kind of we sinned, we're going to give up something because, of, because we, we caused damage, we're going to give up something to make up for that. But also we remind ourselves slaughtering the animal and seeing the slaughter of the animal. The person who brings it is supposed to watch the slaughter of the animal. Um, reminds them of the value of life. It reminds them of the purpose of life. Because animals live similar to humans. And when you see, although it's, they, they have, as we said, a utilitarian life, our lives are infinite. Um, but you see life. You see life leave before your eyes and it reminds you of your own life and it reminds you of the value of our own lives and making our own lives more valuable. And so therefore it also serves, in addition to just building a relationship with God, it serves as that kind of reminder. So now many of us still remain very uncomfortable with sacrifice. It feels pagan. It doesn't feel like a modern thing to do to slaughter animals and bring them as sacrifices. And that's okay. The reason why we feel uncomfortable with sacrifice is because we haven't practiced it. Neither have our parents, neither have our grandparents. It hadn't been practiced for thousands of years. And if we would look at other rituals that we do practice today, we're, oh, we only consider them okay because we practice them. They're normal for us. Something that hasn't been done, we've never experienced it, have no recent records of anyone experiencing it, sounds very strange. Take, for example, circumcision. Circumcision, um, some anti-Semites also trying to stop that, but we've been practicing circumcision for thousands of years. Um, and it, for us, it's very normal because we've always done it. We've experienced it. Our parents have experienced it. Our grandparents for generations. But if we would have never experienced, we would be in a society that never experienced circumcision, and I would tell you that we're going to start circumcision again, um, that would be a very difficult thing to accept, right? For example. Or even, let's say, less controversial things, um, even eating matzah on Passover. Of course, we eat matzah on Passover. It's very normal. We wait every year for the Seder to be able to eat matzah on Passover. But if I would tell you that you would have to have a Seder with four, you've never done it before, and I would tell you there's this thing where you drink four cups of wine late at night and eat this tasteless cracker, um, it would sound very strange. So, so some people like it. So, good. Not good for your stomach, though. So, <laughs> so things, so... So sacrifice, it's okay if sacrifice appears still strange to us because we haven't experienced it. It's not normal for us. But so lack of experience makes it feel foreign and strange, yet we should remember that it is an important part of Judaism. We should study about it, we pray about it, and we constantly pray for it to come back. Now, while we were waiting for the return of sacrifices, um, 
Today, of course, we cannot bring any sacrifices. We don't have the temple standing. We haven't rebuilt the temple. Uh, we did a class some time back about our ability to rebuild the temple. Right now, we can't. Um, but we can still sacrifice, as Debbie mentioned, in our, in our own lives in some ways. How often do we want to do something, but we know we should be doing something else? Right? Sometimes doing what God wants or doing the right thing can be costly. Sometimes it can be costly in time. Sometimes it can be costly in energy. Sometimes it can be costly in f- financially. Um, often it appears difficult to do the right thing. And the concept of sacrifice or giving up to God has been always around in Judaism, and we Jews have sacrificed. For thousands of years, <coughs> Jews were persecuted <coughs> and were forced to give up their lives, um, everything they had, to remain Jewish. Had we not sacrificed, we would not be here today. It's always easy to take the, it's always easy to take the easy way out, do the easy thing. But if we want to do the right thing, we've got to often give up. It's often very costly. And sacrifice really teaches us a very important lesson about Judaism. While being Jewish is a beautiful thing, it's an honorable thing, it's something that we're very happy about, very lucky to be part of, sometimes Judaism can be very costly. Thankfully, we live in a time today where Judaism is not that costly, except for Jewish education, where kosher food can sometimes be a little expensive. But um, being Jewish today is not that costly. We don't have to give up our lives for Judaism. But there were times in in Jewish life where it was dangerous to be Jewish. It was hard to be Jewish. It was very difficult. There There were places and times where getting kosher food was extremely difficult. Today you could go to Trader Joe's and buy kosher meat. Once upon a time that wasn't all that easy. It was a sacrifice for kosher food. Um, there was a time before the 1935 five-day work week, there was a time in this country to keep Shabbos was a sacrifice. It was very, very difficult to keep Shabbos in this country. And Jews did sacrifice. And only thanks to those that did sacrifice do we still have Judaism here today. There was a time that many things in Judaism were difficult. And even today, for many of us, certain parts of being Jewish, Jewish life, doing what we know is the right thing can be difficult. And, but we can only survive, not if we do the easy things, but if we're prepared to sacrifice, if we're prepared to do the hard things as well. But we don't have sacrifice today. We still have the lesson of sacrifice that we have to be prepared to give up for God. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't appreciate it, we have to be prepared to give up for the right. So that's our lesson from sacrifice. 